The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Listen up, it's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Rory Blythe. This is Jeff Maciolek-Hurowans, show number 73 with Jeff Richter, recorded live Thursday, July 22nd. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and now offering hands-on VB.NET and ASP.NET classes remotely. Online at www.franklins.net and by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.net web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com and by Dundas Chart, advanced technology, advanced results. Online at www.dunduschart.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, Microsoft Technologies in-depth for IT managers and developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who was once subpoenaed for obfuscating without a license, Carl Franklin. Without any pain, gotta get enough points. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thanks, Jeff. And uh, this is Carl Franklin here in Vancouver, British Columbia tonight. And you're listening to another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers. With me, as always, is my co-host, my partner in crime, my compadre out there in Portland, Mr. Blythe, Mr. Rory Blythe. Uh, hey. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I guess What's that's up? me. Yeah. Well, not much. Uh, I'm just I'm just relaxing after... Bit of a stressful week. Corey and I moved this week, which is one of those things that I really, really, oh, really? really, 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 really hate doing. And uh, But I'm happy about it because we finally joined the 21st century along with everybody else. We have hot water now, um, dishwasher, electricity. Uh, and, and actually, the really weird thing is that the only thing that we actually did have before was was the electricity. I mean, we really didn't have regular hot water or anything. So it's actually pretty cool. And there was so much lead paint on the walls at our old apartment that you had to go outside to make a cell phone call. So I'm 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 glad wow. to be here. It's it's pretty sweet and I yeah, I've got a nice and view you're feeling of okay, uh, downtown I guess, Portland huh? and things are pretty cool. I'm feeling better, you know. Uh for the past two days I've been feeling really good until an hour ago when I ate some really heavy duty uh tomato orange soup. I don't know if it was just like too much acidity or what, but my God, I have a killer stomach ache, but I'm not going to let it show, you know, professionalism and the show must go on and all that kind of oh, crap, good. but uh, yeah. yeah, it hurts. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. So, uh, that, that's, 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 that's been my week. How are you? I'm doing okay. I was out at uh, Microsoft this week for a tablet PC dev lab, and I haven't really said much about it because 
Oh, I don't know why, but anyway, uh, they fe- they took some influencers, quote unquote, in the industry, and uh, they brought them out there and taught them how to use the tablet, and gave us all a tablet, and uh, it was just a surreal experience because here I am sitting in this room, and I look around the room, and Charles Petzold is sitting in front of me. Next to him is Jeff Richter, and in the back is Paul Yao. And Paul Yao like wrote the very first book on Windows programming that was in print. And here he is, you know, learning about the tablet PC. And uh, Dr. Neil was there, and Julie Lerman and Billy Hollis and John Box were there. Carl Profman was there, and uh, and Marcus Egger, and and so we just got we we actually got to talk to the team, the tablet PC team. Some of the most interesting guys were guys that worked on the really nuts and bolts, you know, down low, low level stuff. Like uh, uh, this guy got up, uh, Jay, who worked on, and I can't remember his last name. He's sorry, Jay. I wanted him to be a guest on the show, but I had just met him. And uh, he actually worked on the, the, the recognition part, like the, you know, the neural networks that get chained yeah. together to recognize handwriting. And told us about you know how they collected millions of samples of handwriting, uh, and just had this huge database of samples that they put through these neural networks. And you know the first time somebody said you know neural net, I was like, you got to be kidding me, right? I mean, it was just blew my mind. I had no idea that there was that much sophistication under under the pen stroke, you know. But uh, just some fascinating stuff. And of course, now I'm hooked on tablets. I just, uh, uh, I'm just blown away. So I got tablet on the brain today. And uh, cool. after that was over, yeah, after that was over, uh, I came up here to uh, Vancouver to Richard Campbell's house. And that's where I am now. So, and uh, while I was there, I got to uh, sign up a quite a few people for uh, future .NET Rock shows, including our guest tonight, Jeff Richter. And um, cool. Charles Petzold is on is on the roster, and he of course wrote one of the most widely read books on Windows programming. Um, it was a Bible for many Windows programmers back in the day, and now is into the .NET stuff. And um, he's going to be on. Uh, Kimberly Tripp is going to be on. She wasn't there, but she's going to be coming up here. And uh, Richard, who else am I forgetting? Uh, that we signed up out there. I can't remember. The list is long. Anyway, we got some great stuff coming up on the show. And while I was there, I got to talk to uh, uh, some people at Microsoft who were, were, were becoming a little more closely partnered with Microsoft in terms of uh, the show, in terms of the show and in terms of what we're doing on the show. For example, we're going to start putting in a segment in the middle of the show that's called the, the Microsoft Moment where you're going to find people like Duncan McKenzie and Chris Sells interviewing um, developer leads and developer team leads at Microsoft on things that they're working on, just these short little 10-minute interviews that are going to go in every show. And um, we were also talking about uh, that the fact that we don't know much about the people who listen to the show. We just know how many downloads we get. And we'd like to get some more metrics on that stuff. So uh, what we're going to do, and this is the official announcement here, uh, 
what we're going to do is give away a tablet PC in exchange for some information about about our listeners. Not necessarily Microsoft in, uh, isn't interested in the personal information, you know, where do you live and all that stuff. They're interested in what languages do you use, what technologies are you interested in, that kind of stuff, so that they can provide better content for you and for, for what your interests are. So we're going to do this exchange. Basically, you're going to enter into a contest by filling out a form, and then we're going to have a winner, and we're going to pick a winner at the end of August, and they're going to win a fully loaded Toshiba Protege M200 tablet PC, like a gig of RAM, 80 gig hard drive, you know, fully loaded thing. Isn't that freaking cool? That's really awesome. I'm using a Toshiba M200 myself, and I absolutely adore the thing. In fact, I want that one because I only have 512 megs of RAM, so, I mean, I probably can't enter <laughs> and all that other stupid crap. I only have 768 cool. myself, so I'm going to have to. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. So um, uh, we don't have the forum online yet. We just found out about this. But as soon as we do, um, check check out the uh, my weblog and Rory's weblog. And um, I'm at weblogs.asp.net slash cfranklin. And Rory, of course, www.neopolian.com. We'll be posting links to the page. And, of course, there'll be a page on the .NET Rocks homepage. So that's about, uh, that's about all the stuff that I've been doing. It's been a busy week for me. And um, yeah, there you go. So I, we got a, a piece of mail that I wanted to read. Didn't get much mail this week. But we did get a note from our old friend uh, Eric Jarby who, as you know, is in Australia, and he has, you know, authored some books, I guess, and uh, one of them that we got, and he's a fan. So he says, Hi, Carl and Rory. I'm just dropping an email to let you guys know that I still tune in to DNR and haven't missed a show yet. Unfortunately, since the new time slot came into place, I haven't been able to listen to the show live uh, because in Sydney, Australia, it's right in the middle of the day and work is always flat out. Consequently, I miss the old times when I had to wake up at 5 a.m. on Saturdays. Anyway, the current format of the show is great. Love the news of the week and Toy Boy with Richard Campbell. The last show was good and polemic in a way. I loved it. Currently, I'm in a long-term project where the company I work for is porting this huge legacy system into .NET, and architecture is always a hot topic for this project. The architects were not sold on SOA, and some coworkers have the same opinion as Rocky Lotka, that SOA is procedural programming over the wire. I would like to see more production implementation around before, com- uh, before committing myself to anything so long-term as SOA is. In the meantime, encapsulating business logic into objects and distributing them via remoting seems to be very productive, efficient, and performs well in our production environment. So what more do we need? Anyway, I can't wait to listen to the next show with Jeff Richter since I read his book, uh, programming server-side applications for Microsoft Windows 2000 and learned so much about server-side programming in Windows. Keep on rocking, Eric's Jarby. And this is great. Nice. P.S. I hope you guys received and enjoyed the Vegemite I sent. <laughs> and Eric, all I got to say is, no, I didn't receive it yet. And when I do receive it, uh, I, it's, a, it's only going in one place, man. In the garbage. I can't stand the smell of yeast, and especially in that format. So... That's uh, pretty nasty stuff. I think he nasty. might have sent it as a joke, actually. Vegemite. Yuck. Disgusting. <laughs> now we're going to get all these pro-Vegemite people, you know, 
What's wrong with Vegemite? I've been eating it since I was a little <laughs> shaver. Right. Well, you have to eat it since you're young. You have to get conditioned to it early on or else you can't possibly tolerate it. It's one of those foods. Have you ever eaten it? Like haggis. I've smelled it. All right. And that's definitely more than enough. It's it's really, <laughs> it has a very strong pungent, fumy odor. I can't, I can't deal with it. anything ending in mite. I can't eat. It's really gross. <laughs> so uh, now comes the time in our program that we like to call the uh, News of the Week with Roy Blythe. Now obey. So you got any news for us this week, Rory? Yes, I do, which is convenient since uh, you just introduced the segment. So the first thing that I have, I've got about four <laughs> articles here today. And uh, the first thing I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you guys about is an article on Business Week about uh, Sun CEO Scott McNeely. It's a pretty ominous article talking about all the, all the mistakes he's made. And it's kind of a story of, you know, big... I, I'm going to use a really pretentious word here, but it's basically a story about hubris and a guy whose ego seems to have gotten in the way of making the right decisions and uh, mm. took a company way down with him. Um, I mean, Sun is trading pretty low right now. I think in the article it says $4 a share or something like that, down from like $9 bajillion a share at its peak. And uh, I made up the $9 bajillion, but you kind of get the idea. Sun is not doing as well <laughs> as it used to be doing. Um, so that's at Business Week. That's at www.businessweek.com slash magazine slash content slash zero four underscore three zero slash B three eight nine three zero zero one underscore MZ zero zero one dot HTM. I can't believe I just read that URL. <laughs> Nobody is going to get that. But uh, we'll, we'll put it up on the website. And it really is. It's a worthwhile article. And the reason I mention it is that people, at least in terms of CEOs in the tech world, people often focus on... Uh, you know, Bill Gates, former CEO, and of course, Steve Ballmer, current, and uh, people like Steve Jobs. They don't really talk about McNeely enough, um, but I really, right. uh, you know, I, I, it's an interesting, it's just an interesting peak. So that's that. The next cool. thing that I've got up here is is some totally cuckoo speculation on a site called vnunet.com. Uh, it's an article by this guy, Roger Howellworth. I don't quite know how to pronounce his name. There's a lot of O's in it, and it's kind of confusing. But the title is Windows Takes on Multiple Roles. And he's doing this thing that some journalists do, which really irritates me, which is he's making a prediction about a technology so far out that if it comes true, three people are going to remember and point to him and say he's a genius. And if it doesn't come true, nobody's going to remember, and he's going to get off scot-free. What he's basically saying Mm. is that um, he thinks that Longhorn is going to run Linux software natively. And I kind of have my doubts about that. I, I mean, Microsoft has its Unix services thing going on, but I don't really see them fully implement. I mean, y- you would essentially have to put like the Linux operating system in there somewhere running side by side with Longhorn in some weird way. Yeah, that, I mean, you'd have to have some sort of layer unusual. that would. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a little cuckoo. So I just wanted everybody to take a look at this so that when Longhorn finally does come out, we can send this guy a bunch of emails and say, ha ha, you know, you stupid bastard. I don't like the way he's looking at us either. He's got, <laughs> he's got a photo on the site and he's looking really smarmy. He's just looking like, yeah, I know exactly what's happening. I've got the crystal ball that tells me everything about the tech world and you just want to smack him. So the URL is <laughs> www.vnunet.com slash comment slash 1156794. 
Not a very friendly URL, but still better than the last one. I'll repeat it again for the live listeners. Who is uh, this guy? www.vnunet.com slash comment slash 11567294. It's this UK tech site, and uh, it, it's just this little oh, article. So it's really not a name brand uh, guy. So not somebody. Every, it's not. He's he's not a name, name brand guy, but he's wearing the suit and he's got that look on his face that you know says I yeah. am going to be a name brand guy when you know this stuff comes out and everybody realizes that I was such a genius and that Linux has been put inside the Longhorn operating system. So moving on to the next mm. uh, item, this is great. All right, and a lot of people have probably seen this. It was up on Slashdot. It's an article. Um, called PHP versus ASP.NET, and I have never seen a more blatant bit of tech propaganda fud, just garbage. Uh, it's 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 yeah. Really, you were you really, showed really this bad. to me earlier. It's amazing. Yeah the uh, the the URL is otn.oracle.com slash pub slash articles slash hull h-u-l-l underscore asp dot html. That's otn.oracle.com slash pub slash articles slash hull h-u-l-l underscore asp dot html. And just all the way uh, through this through this article, there's an incredible amount of just complete garbage. It's It's... It's to the point that it's kind of hard for me to contain, like, my seething anger. But listen to this, all right? Mm. In this article, I'll focus on PHP, the technology Oracle has chosen to incorporate into its products, and ASP.NET. I'll overview the various strengths and weaknesses of each, discussing in particular those areas that will help you make your decision on which to go with for your development project. There are a lot of factors to consider, and different projects may appeal to a different technology. In conclusion, you'll find a point-by-point comparison in terms of price, speed, and efficiency, security, cross-platform support, and the advantages of an open-source solution. I mean, he tells you Ah. before the article has even begun that this thing is going to end with his ruling that the open-source solution is the best. And I think that probably the high point of this article is this uh, comparison made. Matrix, where I guess in normal people words a table showing a comparison between PHP four, PHP five, and ASP.NET. He uses such incredibly you know good metrics as uh, speed, for example. PHP four he rated as strong, PHP five is strong, and ASP.NET as weak. Um, that's a pretty yeah. That's, that's a pretty pretty, uh, pretty screwed metric. Yeah, and he he's he's just does his stuff all the way through. It's it's really over the top, and I recommend that everybody um, read this article. It's 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 almost funny. I mean, if you can put if you can put aside for a moment, it's kind of like slowing it is down as an is. accident, you know. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of. It's it's hard to believe that Oracle put this up. I, I'm really surprised. I mean, even with a company headed by somebody as scummy as Larry Ellison, I'm surprised that Oracle put this up. Okay, so moving right along, <laughs> this last little uh, bit of news is something that's kind of unusual. It's not .NET related, it's not PHP, it's not uh, some database thing. It's this game it's called Mindball. It is kind of. <laughs> uh, the URL is www.mindball.se. On the left-hand uh, side of the screen, there's a link that says Mindball. Click on it, and you will see uh, some photos and a description of this game that is totally and utterly unique. It's not Clue. It's not Monopoly, it's not Parcheesi, it's not Checkers, Chess, or Backgammon. It's something brand new. You strap this headband to your noggin, and you control this metal ball on a table. 
with your brain waves. Oh. Whoever is the most relaxed oh, wow. wins. So it's a game of like Zen aggressiveness, which is sort oh, of a man. strange concept. Yeah, it's That's it's wild. really cool. And I want this thing. I want to own this thing. I want to be the first person on the block to own Mindball, but I'm guessing that it's probably pretty expensive, even though I'm guessing that the electronics aren't aren't too sophisticated. So uh well Rory, before yeah, you before you wrap out. up, I, I have a an item of news to to talk about too. Uh I was just watching up on channel nine um some videos that uh somebody did at the at the research uh Microsoft research where they went in and they looked at some of the labs that where, where things are being developed and worked on and just some amazing stuff up there. This guy who was working with media and uh, ways to access different movies and, and uh, pictures and things and hovering over a matrix of thumbnails, very small, you know, stamp sized images. And when you move the mouse over them, that you just sort of zoom in and, and you get a big representation of them and it, Things like working with multiple monitors and large monitors and Dragon Pop and all of this other incredible stuff. So, uh, you know, if you haven't been to Channel 9, that msdn.com and to check out the movies, definitely do that. There's some really interesting things. You can't get that perspective from anywhere else but Channel 9. Sweet. I guess that's the news for the week. Yeah. Well, Rory, uh, our guest, Jeff Richter, is co-founder of Wintelect, www.wintelect.com, which is a training, debugging, and consulting firm, in, for the two people that don't know, uh, dedicated to helping companies build yeah, better I've software it, yeah. faster. Yeah. He is the author of several best-selling .NET and Win32 programming books, including... Applied Microsoft.NET Framework Programming from Microsoft Press. Jeffrey is also a contributing editor to MSDN Magazine, where he authors the .NET column. Jeff has been consulting with Microsoft's .NET Framework team since October 1999 and has also been consulting on Microsoft's XML Web Services and Messaging Team, Indigo, since January 2003. Uh, would you please welcome the one, the only, Jeff Richter. Hi. How you doing? I'm doing all right. This is my Excellent. first time and doing something like this. That uh, should be fun. Yeah, good. Yeah. It's my first time, too, so don't worry about it. Oh, no, now I'm nervous. <laughs> well, it was, uh, yeah, we don't usually uh, we round trip uh, the, the, f- the show from the West Coast to the East Coast. And- right. We uh, met for the first time out here at the Tablet PC Lab and, uh, and uh, spent some time uh, getting to know each other. And uh, I had heard your name, of course, and I'd... Uh, read sections of your books, not the whole thing. I don't think anybody reads a book like that from cover to cover, but uh, maybe they should, huh? And uh, it just, uh, you know, the little light bulb went off, and I thought, you know, you'd be a great guest on the show, and we have a lot to talk about. Certainly, we have been doing a lot of high-level shows lately, and uh, maybe it's time to roll up our sleeves and get down into the CLR. So, So I'm real excited about that. Thanks for the invite. Yeah. And uh, we have a lot of people out in the chat room tonight who are asking all kinds of questions and questions on our on our website. So let's uh, let me just talk a little bit first about your history with with Microsoft and with .NET. Um, how long have you been, uh, for lack of a better word, working with Microsoft or the .NET team, or was it? Did you get started with them before uh, .NET? Um, well, so. 
Um, well, first, a common question that people have is, am I now or have I ever been an employee at Microsoft? And the answer is yeah. no to both. I am not now, and I have never been an employee there. I started doing uh, contracting work as a vendor to Microsoft about 11 years ago. And uh, my first position was with the first version of Visual Studio, the first 32-bit version of Visual Studio for Windows NT. And then I did a lot of contracting work for the systems and platform teams, which means Windows. In fact, there's a bunch of stuff that's in Windows today that, um, well, I either authored or had a lot to do with. Like the run-as utility or the ability to run a program under a different set of user credentials, I wrote that. Yeah? That ships today with Oh, really? Windows. Yeah, that was me. Uh, in fact, they didn't even think it could be done. This was back in the NT4 days. And they said, well, let's just get a contractor in because we don't think it's possible. And um, I had it mostly working. Then they needed to add some stuff to the operating system to load registry profiles correctly, which I couldn't do unless I was working inside the operating system itself. But I wrote the run-as utility, and then we got the shell team to add the support in the shell to run something under different credentials and so on. And um, Anyway, that was all made. That turns out to be really critical when running in under least privilege, which is something that I've been trying to do lately. And it's just really, really hard to get anything done when you're not an administrator, especially with development. Oh, that's true. That's very true. So, yeah, it was kind of a cool thing. Also, the um, uh, the magnifier application that ships with Windows, I wrote that. And the ability to dock cool. it on a, on a side of the screen, you can dock the magnifier app on a side of the screen. That's directly from some code that I had published in MSDN years ago. I used that same code written in MSC to, to write that app. Um, Office used to ship with a system info utility, and I wrote pieces of that. Um, Spy++, hmm. my name is in the about box of that, and I contributed a lot of code to that. I didn't do it all. It was a team of three of us, but I did a lot of it. Yeah. Wow. Been a busy guy. I also worked on the Windows Sound System, now defunct, and <laughs> yeah, I worked on Microsoft Golf version two quite some time ago. Wow! So, what did wow. you do in Microsoft Golf? Uh, they were modifying the application so that people could play against each other across the internet. Um, you know, just doing regular uh -huh. sockets communication. This was this was like 1994, really before the the internet boom, and. Um, Right. Uh, the code name for the part we were doing, I remember, was called Twister. And we had a you know a little applet where people could uh, see who else was online, and you could connect to that person, and then you could play a game of golf online. I had actually nothing to do with the so game you, itself, just the communications. So you did the sockets communication for that game? Yeah, and inviting people into it, the, the chat room kind of stuff, to see who is available and who wants to play and all that. I worked on that. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And um, so that was obviously before .NET. So when did you uh, when did you start working with them on that? I mean, obviously they didn't sit around and say, "Hey, let's we have this thing called .NET. Now let's see what we can put under this." You know, it sort of evolved from. Didn't the .NET framework evolve as a sort of a, a, a an alternative to COM first? Yeah. So actually, was, the um, the mildly interesting story kind of goes like this. Um, I was always a Win32 guy, and I never really cared all that much about COM. I mean, I did some of it, but I never never really wrote articles about it or books about it and never really spent a lot of time with it. Um, Jeff Proceis, who I had known for, for years and years, he was a COM guy. 
And he called me up one day and says, Microsoft invited him out to this new COM Plus 2.0 design preview at Redmond. And you right. get it together for dinner. And I said, yeah, sure, since I live you know, uh, in Bellevue, which is right next to Redmond. And he told me the dates of it. And I said, you know, I'm not actually doing anything those days. Maybe I can get them to invite me to the design review. So we made some phone calls, and they did invite me, and I went. And as I was sitting there, it was two days, I remember. And they're going through explaining all this COM plus two stuff. It immediately dawned on me that this really had very little to do with COM. It was really a whole new yeah. development platform. I was really glad that I that I went to it and saw everything, and I thought, wow, this is really going to change the world for programmers. Then uh, I started right. talking to Sarah Williams, who now runs MSDN, but I had known her for years because she worked on Windows. And she said, you know, we could really benefit from having somebody like you doing consulting work for us and looking over our SDK and our samples and our messaging to outside people. Would you be interested in coming on as a contractor and consulting position? And I said, sure, that'd be great. Because usually in the past, whenever I wanted to write a book or article, it's always been on my own dime. This was the first time ever they were actually going to pay me to learn the stuff so that then I could go write a book about it or magazine articles about it. So it was great for me in terms of leveraging my time um, and getting paid for it. So that was in October of 1999. I started there, um, which was called the uh, .NET SDK integration team. They hadn't come up with the name .NET yet, but it was the right. integration team. What was it called? The Next Generation Well, it went through many names. The actual code name for the right. runtime was originally Lightning because it was yeah. the follow-on to Visual Basic, which the original code name for that was Thunder. So it was Thunder right. and Lightning. And if, for those people who are familiar with Rotor, which is the shared source version of the Common Language Runtime, Rotor is also a code name for some other meteorological event. And it fits in that same family of Thunder, Lightning, and Rotors. It was all <laughs> Thunder, of Lightning, and Rotor. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a 70s horn band, anyway. So I've been involved with it now. And then about last August, um, some people on the... CLR asked me to join this version architecture team that was trying to fix DLL hell. And it's an area right. of how how the runtime or even how Windows has always loaded things. Uh, dynamic link libraries and how load library and free library works and stuff like that right. with Windows has always, for some reason, fascinated me. I can't explain why. Maybe because it's a real problem. Yeah. I guess. But other people think, yeah, it's a real problem, but uh, that's very boring. <laughs> I'd rather get windows to pop up on the screen. It's very visual and more rewarding to see visual things. Right. What I, I was actually invited to some meeting uh, when I was out at a VBITS or something. I can't remember when it was or even when. It might have been 94, 95, something like that. But but they were trying to solve the whole versioning problem and the the, the problem with uh, you know versions of DLLs and DLL hell, basically. And they didn't have any clue of what to do, but they were just trying to get people's input. And it just turned into a big bitching session. Yeah. You know, nobody really had any good ideas. And, uh, you know, n now that you see the .NET framework, it's very obvious what the solution was all along to reference uh, classes, not only in assemblies, not only by their name, but by a particular version. And don't, you know, don't just uh, limit yourself to one version per class. And, uh, you know, that's just brilliant, whoever whoever figured that out. And I, I guess it goes back to the culture of DLLs, right, where 
you can only have DL, a DLL with the same name, only one copy in memory. Was that true? Um, you could only have... No, if they came from different paths, you could load them simultaneously. Oh, static DLLs? Yeah. Okay. The problem was that most of the DLLs ended up in System 32. And so if right. two companies happened to create DLLs, both called Sue.dll, the last app to get installed overwrote the previous ones, and now that was a problem. So really, the, I think the biggest fix is that we install files on the hard drive side by side, not on top of each other. Yeah. And that allows yeah. the, the loader to pick out the one that it wants. But it wasn't even considered good practice to not use the system, put them in system 32. Like, especially with com, you know, you didn't want to register a com object in your own directory because it's obviously shared and should be shared in some shareable place, I guess. I don't know. It just seems to me that, you know, when you look at the .NET framework, you know, it's like, of course, it's such a simple idea that uh, why didn't we think of this earlier kind of thing. At least that's how it was for me. Well, the the new model works better in some ways and it works worse in some other ways. Yeah, such as? Um, the better part or the worst part? The worst part. Well, we know, we've... The better sure, part is that multiple copies sit there. But the worst part is um, what we've been getting from Windows all these years is that a new version of a file shows up, and then applications just start getting new features for free, right? right. Which includes bug fixes for two um, also. And the .NET framework really doesn't make that easy at all. So it's kind of like the opposite of COM, where you know you had all this rigid uh, versioning stuff that you had to adhere to and now it's just sort of the Ber- the Berlin Wall coming down it's a free for all. <laughs> yeah, kind of like that. <laughs> well, anyway. uh, you need to think about it carefully. Well, um there's some versioning things that are coming up in the next version of the CLR that uh we were talking about that I'd like like to uh maybe pick your brain on a little bit. What's going to be different in CLR 2.0? Um, uh, uh, 2.0 with respect to versioning? Actually, not too much. Yeah. The stuff that I'm doing will be in CLR 3.0. Ah. Which is the version that ships with Longhorn, which is you know, okay. several years away yet. But uh, in 2.0, yeah, I don't think there's... Well, I mean, there's the click one stuff, which is kind of new in terms of deployment. But other than that, we don't have too much else new in, uh, in Whitby. So what can you talk about for the Longhorn CLR? Well, for that one, I think first to position the the DLL hell problem, which now some people say we have versioning hell instead of DLL hell, uh, is that it's really an unsolvable problem. That's that's why my team, the version architecture team at Microsoft, we get a little discouraged from time to time because people keep thinking we're going to come up with the solution to DLL hell or versioning hell, and we now believe it's completely impossible. If you think about it, hmm. the uh, what people want is when a new version of the system ships, they want the new version to be completely backward compatible with the previous version. And that, of course, means right. to maintain complete backward compatibility that none of the bits in the file change. On the other hand, people also want new features added to the system, and Microsoft wants to add new features. And in order for them to do that, bits have to change. 
So right. what people want is a file where nothing has changed and a lot of stuff has changed, and that's impossible. We can't do both. <laughs> do you think this is a uh, a sort of an outgrowth uh, or, or a model that I think would happen to any operating system that enjoyed the popularity that Windows has? Like if this were not Windows, if it were some other company, if it were OS2, for example, and you had all of the success that Windows has had through, you know, since Windows 3.0, basically, having to innovate uh, or innovation kind of slows down because of compatibility. Do you think this is a pattern that would happen regardless of what operating system was the dominant operating system? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's maybe more of a pain for Windows since it, you know, has such success uh, versus some other operating systems. And there's right. so many customers on top of Windows that whenever a change goes in, you have to regression test so many different applications to see if you broke any of the ISV apps where on some other platforms there just isn't that much support. Windows also has this, you know, is really built on top of this dynamic linking uh, mechanism and the .NET framework, you know, also, which means that various components at runtime move in and out of your process depending on what version happens to be installed or where it's installed to. And that means that, you know, you've tested with one set, but at runtime or on some end user's machine, you might get a completely different set of files or some weird combination. And that adds a lot of fragility and brittleness. Makes it very difficult to debug. You're not guaranteed what set of code is in there on an end user's machine. Right. And do you think that, uh, well... Has there been situations where you guys have had to make absolutely special kludges for particular applications just so that they will work? I mean, oh, absolutely. Like specific? Yeah, I can name two that are kind of interesting. Um, back in the uh, first version of Windows NT, which was Microsoft's first truly multi-threaded operating system, uh, whenever they ran 16-bit PowerPoint on top of it, 16-bit PowerPoint went into a peak message loop, not a get message loop. And so it never gave up the processor. It never went to sleep for anything. Right. And uh, the Windows NT team, if you ran PowerPoint and other apps simultaneously, PowerPoint was just stealing all the cycles, and the other applications could never get a chance to run. So it's kind of like did, a visual basic do events loop. Yes, kind of like that. Exactly. Uh, so what Microsoft did was they actually modified Windows NT so that if peak message is called so many times in a second, I forget the number, they check to see if it's being called by PowerPoint.exe, the 16-bit version. <laughs> and if so, they lower the priority of the thread. Oh, God, I think that awful. still ships in Windows today, that code. Uh, there's another wow. example. There was a game called Army Men, and <laughs> Microsoft made some change to the operating system that broke this game, Army Men. And once they discovered that, Windows has this feature that when you run a program called armymen.exe, the computer immediately switches into 600, um, 640 by 480 screen resolution, and Alt-Tab is disabled. <laughs> you have to exit oh, Army man. Men before you can switch to another app. Oh, and that's God. built into every copy of Windows that Microsoft sells today. <laughs> And that's just two wow. examples. There's literally hundreds, if not thousands, of examples along these lines. It's just amazing that it comes down to that, you know, that these some of these applications get written in such a way that they can't be modified. Yeah, some of it's Microsoft's it. fault. It's not always the application developer. And, you know, PowerPoint yeah. was Microsoft's fault. 
just on the sure. app side instead of the OS side. But yeah, and we're going to yeah. start putting stuff like that into the runtime, I'm sorry to say. But um, we now, the runtime's right. been shipping for maybe only a couple of years now, three years or so. But we're starting to build, people are starting to build apps on top of it. And we want to make some significant changes to the runtime that's probably going to require that we do crazy stuff just like that in the CLR itself now. Now, you guys have committed to coming out with a new version, you know, every year or two at least, of the of the framework, or at least that's what I heard. Mm-hmm. There's going to be just a continuous barrage of frameworks, in other words, over the next 10 years. And uh, I just wonder, you know, if if you're getting a lot of, what kind of feedback are you getting from customers about that? I mean... On one on one hand, it's a, it's a trade off of an innovation versus compatibility, but people seem to always be stuck in the mode that they have to code against the latest and greatest. But is is it really true, or is do do customers feel comfortable saying, "All right, framework one point one, that's what we're going to target. This is where we're going to stay. It has everything we need, and stay there." Well, you know, it's a double edged sword there too. Uh, we have some a bunch of customers today that program against version 1.0 and won't even adopt 1.1, let alone 2.0, and they know that they won't adopt it because their customers that will actually be running the applications might only have or probably only have version 1.0 installed. And if they build it for 1.1, that means that their customers have to have 1.1 installed. And getting the .NET framework itself installed on a machine has been very difficult for our ISVs to get it onto their customers' boxes. Especially today when we want to deploy Windows Forms apps and things like that over the web, it requires that the runtime already be on the box before the the app can come down and start executing. Why don't you see that uh, the framework rolled into a service pack? Well, we do make it available now in Service Pack 1 as an optional download. But it's optional, though. It is optional. Um, well, because it's 20 megabytes. It's a 20 meg download, mm, okay. and a lot of people are still on dial-up modems. Yeah. Uh, Microsoft was able, after version 1.0 shipped, to go to almost all the OEMs that sell hardware with Windows pre-installed on it to customers and got the uh-huh. OEMs to preload the .NET framework on it. Yeah. Even even though like Windows XP Service Pack One hadn't shipped yet, but they still got the .NET framework to, to, on those machines sold from the OEM. So that helped a lot. Um, do you work on the service packs for .NET? Like, do you know what's coming or what are the big updates with say SP1 for .NET 1.1? No, I don't pay much attention to that. Actually, what I'm mm-hmm. saying is, right now I focus on the, the Orcus release with the version okay. in particular. I do know a bunch of stuff that's in Whitby. Okay. Well, let's get back to that question then. What's uh, what's new in versioning for uh, the Orcus framework? Well, so what, what we've come to realize is that certain DLLs are, should be treated as part of the platform. That is, right. when just like User32 today or Kernel32 today or any of the DLLs that ship with Windows today, actually, when you install a new service pack or a new version of Windows on the machine, all the applications get the new version of the DLL, and there's nothing they can do about it. And actually, that has worked reasonably well. It has caused some problems for some people, but that has worked reasonably well. Uh, On the other hand, the .NET framework treated everything as though it were a library instead of a platform component where the applications always loaded 
the version of the file that they were built and tested with. So the program always behaved the same way all the time. Yeah. Well, now what we realize is that there's room in this world for both of those, and both of those need to exist. So what we're doing in uh, Orcus is when somebody creates a DLL or an executable, you'll say, like in Visual Studio when you create a new project, I want this executable or DLL to be a platform file, or I want this one to be a library file. And then the runtime loader will uh, use rules. When it knows that an application is looking for a platform file, it'll look for the latest version that's on the machine and load that one. And if it knows cool. it's looking for a library file, it'll load the version that the program was built and tested with. So it's kind of like the whole GAC thing taken to the next level. Yes. Kind of like cool. that. The other thing, cool. I think this is important for um, your listeners to know, uh, is that we firmly believe in strongly named assemblies. And we are probably going to enforce that all assemblies be strongly named in the future, and we'll probably forbid uh, weakly named assemblies from being created with the Orcus toolset. Are you going to make it easy for people to do that? Yes, we will. What will probably happen is when you install Visual Studio on your machine, it will probably create for you a public-private key pair. And when you just build your application, it'll be using that key pair to sign it. And you won't even be aware of this. Um, although you can certainly go and change it if you want to. But the default behavior is that everything will be strongly named and we'll know it. And when we have that strong name identification, there's a lot of additional support the runtime can give to you. Like if we're doing those application hacks, like I was talking about before with PowerPoint and Army Men, we might say yeah. that, oh, there's a foo.exe that was this version number created by this publisher that holds this public key, and that foo.exe needs to be given this special support inside the CLR. But a foo.exe created with a different version number or by a different publisher, we don't need to give it that special treatment in the CLR. That's just one example. There's many other things that we could do with strongly named assemblies we can't do with... One thing that uh, I I, uh, quickly discovered um, just by the nature of how it works is that I see a lot of uh, people feeling that they have to create lots and lots of keys you know, public-private keys for strongly named assemblies. And it doesn't really make sense. And if you look in the in the framework itself, you guys only have four or five different, uh, you know, key pairs that you use. Actually, Microsoft strong has name. four. The whole company, Microsoft, has four keys, key pairs. Yeah. And that's all that we ever use. Right, because the more keys you have, the more accountability, and, and it's just easier if you can stick to as few as possible. That's right. Absolutely correct. All right. Well, we got a couple of questions here from the uh, from the chat room. Let's uh, let's view these up here. First one comes from uh, Abdella Ilamiri, and uh, in New York, and he says or she says for who knows? I don't know what that name is. Uh, can you unload assemblies from app domains in two point Because you can't do it in one point one. Yes. Um, no, you cannot, and we will probably never offer that feature. Okay. We want. If you think about it, if you load an assembly into an app domain and then you start executing code in that assembly, that may cause other assemblies to get loaded into that app domain as well. And then if you unloaded the first one, we don't know to unload all the others that that got loaded accidentally, if you will. 
Um, so that is one of the reasons why we have app domains, is so that you can do this unloading. And then all the other assemblies that got loaded as a side effect get unloaded at the same time. And we're probably going to keep that. We've, we've heard that request from many people that they want to unload an assembly. Maybe someday we'll add it, but I think it's very unlikely. Um, what about some sort of uh, flag or bit or something that you can put in the app domain that says that tells all the other assemblies that such and such a app domain has created you and could possibly remove you or whatever. I mean, if you're if you're controlling all the assemblies in the in the chain, you know, if if somebody wants to go ahead and take a chance and shoot themselves in the foot, shouldn't they be able to? Well, I would say, no, it's not the philosophy we want to have. We want you to okay. be in a managed environment. We want to manage your environment, and we want to make you guarantees of no memory leaking and no memory corruption. And when stuff gets unloaded, everything gets unloaded and just doesn't sit around. Okay. And the only way we can make those guarantees is if we either unload everything or we did a lot more record-keeping to know. And the record-keeping right. means more memory usage and slower execution and we don't want to do that right now. Okay. Uh, Wade from Shelbyville, Kentucky says, how will Orcus and the versioning model work with the BITS, B-I-T-S, technology? Oh, um, the, the BITS technology is the, the automatic downloading of code yep. from a website onto your machine, for those people who may not know what BIT is. It's uh, some kind of intelligent transfer, background intelligent transfer service. I think that's what it's that's it. for. And, um, well, we're already going to start using the BIT technology in Whidbey. Whidbey has this new feature called Click Once, where a user can go to a website and they click on a link once, and an application will get downloaded from the website on the user's machine and can just start running. But what also gets downloaded on the user's machine is this new thing called a manifest. This is new in Whidbey. And the manifest contains some additional information in it telling the runtime how often to go back to the original website to see if there's a new version available. And so when you run the application, or maybe even in the background, Windows can go and check this, and it would use the bit service to download new versions of the application onto the client's machine so that the client machine automatically knows when there's a new version available, and it can optionally or automatically, at the publisher's uh, choice, decide whether or not the new version should be forced down to an end user or just make it optional to come down to an end user. Yeah, so that's we'll be using that and leveraging that even more so in Orcus, so that new applications or new DLLs that show up, they'll automatically be able to just come down onto the user's machine in the background. Okay. We think it's a really good technology, the bit stuff, and we want to be using it more. And we want to make it available to third parties more as well. Okay. Um, let's go ahead and define what an app domain is, because you've uh, mentioned it a couple of times. And I think we've only talked about app domains on one or, one or two shows before. So um, let's enlighten people. Okay. Uh, an app domain is kind of like a miniature Windows process. Uh, a, creating a process in Windows, like using the Win32 Create Process API, is a very heavyweight task to perform. I think of all the Win32 APIs, of which there's tens of thousands, the Create Process API is probably the slowest by far. 
when you call it, it has more work to do than probably any other API in the system and can actually take several seconds before it returns back to the caller. Uh, and what it's doing there is it's virtualizing an address space, and it has to load in a bunch of dynamic link libraries. It's got to create a bunch of kernel objects. It's got to create thread objects. It's got to establish their stacks. Um, then the thread has to notify every DLL's main method with a thread attach or process attach notification. Um, there's a lot of work that goes on there. And then in that in big address space, a lot of it really goes wasted. Like Notepad doesn't need a whole... Uh, you know, 32-bit address space. And now that we're moving to 64-bit windows, Notepad is certainly wasting almost all of its virtual address space that's available to it. So the idea behind app domains, which was originally put into the runtime at the ASP.NET team's request, is a way to yeah. take a process and divide it up into the a Windows process and divide it up into these miniature processes. Each is much uh, lightweight. Like creating an app domain is a very fast operation compared to creating a process in Windows. In fact, app domains don't even get their own thread, so a new thread isn't created per app domain. Uh, and there's three main reasons why people use app domains today. The first reason is for unloading, like the, the first question that I was asked. You can create an app domain, you can load a bunch of assemblies into it, and then you unload the app domain that includes all of those assemblies. That's probably the most common reason why people use app domains. That gives us the equivalent of doing a load library followed by a free library in Win32. And maybe in the middle there you called get proc address and started calling some functions inside the DLL. For example, if you were going to shell out to run a program uh, instead of creating it in its own new process space and trying to communicate through standard in, standard out, or something like that, you might want to just load it up in an app domain. Yeah, yeah, that would be good. Yeah, and then it would be much quicker. Getting it started would be much quicker. And communicating with it would be faster because you're really just communicating right. within the same process rather than process boundaries. So it's, uh, it's faster and simpler using it that way. Yeah, that would be a fine reason to do it. Um, the second main reason for app domains is for security boundaries. App domains can be secured with code access security permissions. So I could create an app domain and lock it down, put it in a, a sandbox, then load some assemblies into it, then execute the code in there, and the code in that app domain might be restricted in some fashion. Like it, I might forbid it to have disk access, so it can't look at any files on the hard drive, for open them for reading or write to them. Or maybe I lock it down so it can't manipulate the clipboard at all, read contents out of the clipboard or write anything to the clipboard, and so on. So that's the second main reason for app domains. I can cool. put some code in an app domain with its own security settings on it. And then the third reason for why people use app domains is for settings. Each app domain has its own uh, path, if you will, for where the runtime should look for other assemblies to load into it. So I could create an app domain and say, when any code in here wants to use the, the foo class, the runtime should look for the foo class in an assembly, and here's the directories where it should look. Then I could create another app domain and say to the runtime, whenever you're looking for the foo class in some assembly, here's a different set of directories that you should use for locating that class or that DLL to load it in. Um, and that's much less common than the other two reasons, but... That's another That's thing awesome. you can do with app domains. They're the big three. Now, in Orcus, we'll probably have a fourth reason for app domains, um, which has to do with versioning. 
you'll be able to load one version of a file in one app domain and a different version of a file in another app domain. Actually, that's kind of even interesting today, but wow, it gets that's more cool. interesting in Orcas. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's very cool. Yeah, Windows never really supported that before. That was hard to pull off in Windows. It'll be very easy to pull off in the, the .NET runtime. Well, uh, Jeff, this would be a good place to uh, stop and, and play some music and play the bills. So if you just uh, like to sit tight for a few minutes, we'll be right back uh, after these uh, brief announcements and musical interludes. Stick around. Well, let it rain, let it pour, let it rain a whole lot more, cause I got them deep river blues. Just let the rain drive right on, let the waves just sweep along, yes, I got them deep river blues. Now, my old gal, she's a good old pal, she looks just like a waterfowl when I get them. I'll go out on a spree when I get them deeper. Just give me back my old boat. I'm gonna sail her if she'll float. Cause I got them deep river blues. Yeah, I'm going back to muscle shows. Times are better, there I'm told. Cause I got them deep. Carl Franklin here giving a shout out to my friends at Data Dynamics. Uh, we've talked a lot about active reports on this show, and this is no exception. So I'm talking about ActiveReports.net. This is a port of their popular Active Reports program. If you're currently thinking of doing reporting in.NET for Windows Forms or web applications, check out Active Reports for.NET. Uh, many of my friends in the business use and swear by ActiveReports.net. I use it as well. Let me just tell you, to say that the reporting is simple does it an injustice because it makes you think that it can only do simple things. It can do very powerful things, but you don't have to go through hoops just to set up a simple report. When you create a report, 
the report exists with your application. Okay, it doesn't exist on a server somewhere. All right, we're not talking about enterprise reporting. We're talking about I have some data. I want to print it out, or I want to show it to the user. PDF format is supported. HTML format is supported. All the great features you'd expect from a reporting engine. Drop dead simple, and the best part: it's not going to break the bank. They have a great licensing scheme that's easy to deal with. So check it out at www.datadynamics.com. Now let's get back to our show. In the sky 
and we're back. Thanks for uh, thanks for sticking around. Thanks for uh, hanging out. And uh, this is the usually the time in in the show when we do the Google Weirdos. However, uh, Rory, you got something different in mind for the for the Google Weirdos tonight, don't you? Yeah, tonight instead of doing the Google Weirdos as we would normally do. I wanted to just do something a little bit different, as some people know I like to do every once in a while, just to shake things up a little bit. So this time, instead of Google Weirdos, I wanted to do my top 10 list of reasons why C-sharp is better than VB.net in light of recent arguments and blog uh, <laughs> flame wars. <laughs> okay. So as usual, um, you know, when we do these little uh, one-time segments, we don't have any music, but I guess I can just hum some crap. Top 10 list. Okay, there we go. I'm done humming now. All right. Okay, here we go. So my top 10 list of reasons why C-sharp is better than VBNet. Reason number 10, delegates. What do you think of that? We've got that in VB.net. We got delegates. Ah. Well, okay. Well, number nine, attributes. Nope. Sorry. We got them too. Oh, well, okay. Um, number eight then, com interop. Nope, we can do com interop in VBNet. No okay. problem. Okay. Well, six. Um. Uh, uh Events. <sighs> nope. Sorry. So you can do we events can do in uh, VBNet as well. Yep. Sure can. Okay. Well, this is this is kind of tough. Um, number five then. Um, a simple, straightforward, easy to grok late binding system. Nope. Sorry, we can we can do that in VBNet too. I guess we don't really have that in C sharp anyway. So number four, um, multi threading. <laughs> Sorry, man. <laughs> okay, so you got multi threading in VBNet nowadays, huh? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, fine. Uh, uh, number three then. Um. A sophisticated web development framework called ASP.NET. We can do now ASP.NET in VB.NET and always could. Okay. Well, um, then uh, number two. Um, uh, in version nope. two, we're going to have generics we in C Sharp. Oh, well, okay. Um, fine then. Number one reason that C Sharp is better than VB.NET is a mysterious $10,000 a year salary advantage. Now that I ain't going to argue with. <laughs> it's mysterious all right oh did i forget number seven uh it doesn't really yeah. matter i think people get the point they're the same damn thing people it's the same <laughs> freaking languages running over the same framework you know i mean one says dim and the other says curly brace and one says if and well i guess the other one says if too i mean they're the same thing you know i prefer the way c sharp looks but i just wanted to do that list to sort of in a joking way kind of point out that uh they are really just the same thing. Now you know that you started something here, because uh, because Jeff is uh, an avid anti VBNet person. <laughs> oh, really? I did not know that. Okay. Uh, well, I, I mean, I'm not go that far. <laughs> okay. okay. Well, but you have a belief, yeah, I mean, though. You have I a belief that VBNet's going to go me, away. We'll put it that way. I am pro C sharp. But you actually think that VBNet's going to go away, right? Um, no, I don't know if it'll go away. I think that I think the two languages 
The reason why we have people ask questions, what, what's the difference between the two languages or why should I use this one over that one? Today, that comes up because the two languages are nearly identical to each other. But I think as the future moves on, the languages are going to diverge more wildly. Like nobody ever says to me, hey, Jeff, should I use C-sharp or Fortran? You know, or C-sharp or VB or COBOL, because those two language, those languages are completely different for each other. They have a place in this world that's specific mm-hmm. to them. I think that will happen over time, too. In fact, I was talking with yeah. the, some people on the VB team on the way down to TechEd. This was last TechEd. And um, they said that VB is going to be much more so for the application developer who wants to build things more rapidly. Um, it'll be easier for them to build stuff. That will usually come at a cost of performance. So VB will probably not perform as well as C-sharp. Um, actually, it doesn't do that today. Over time, you mean? Well, it doesn't do it today. VB is slower than C-sharp today because of it has some ease of use features <sighs> in it already. Um, but over time, VB will do more for the programmer, um, and that'll be a performance hit. So the performance variation, let's put it that way, will become greater over time. And um, well, Jeff, let's just say that I, I don't believe you that, that C-sharp is inherently faster than VB. Okay. But I don't want to get into that now, though. Because no <laughs> we have so, much better, so many better things to talk about. Okay. Um, but anyway, uh, that'll be another show. We got a, a question from Arthur Jelly from The Day in New London. Now, he's uh, Russian, so he writes with a Russian accent. And so I apologize for this. But he says, different websites on the same server, Windows 2000, are they run in the same application domain or different ones? And they are different assemblies, but they all run under ASP.NET underscore WP.exe. If one of the apps slows or has a problem, all websites are affected. That's the question. Are all websites affected? The way that ASP.NET works is it runs each virtual root in its own app domain within a single process. So if you have multiple virtual roots exposed on a single server, those will each be running in its own app domain. Uh, if one okay. of those applications goes into an infinite loop, then it is stealing that thread away from the thread pool and yes, that can adversely affect the system. Uh, the ASP team is putting in some safeguards for that to see if a, a request has come in from a client and the website hasn't returned HTML back in a couple of seconds. I forget what the actual numbers are, but they'll go and terminate the mm-hmm. request so that that kind of thing can happen. It's also possible that an application or the code in an app domain could be newing up a lot of objects and keeping references to them. Then the garbage collector won't be able to reclaim them, and it'll be consuming a lot of memory, taking it away from the code running in other app domains. So, yes, that's all possible, although that's also true today. If you have a process running, and the process is allocating a lot of physical RAM, using a lot of physical RAM, then that's making less physical RAM available to other processes. Windows has had that problem since NT3.1, when it supported multiple processes in their own address space. Um, Microsoft's always yeah. looking at this. We call these things more like denial of service attacks and right. instead of like real security attacks. And Microsoft is starting to get more serious about ways of countering denial of service attacks. But they haven't done very much in that area in the past. 
Let me ask you this. Is the garbage collection strategy of the programmer going to be different for an ASP.NET application than for a uh, a Windows application programmer? Um, it shouldn't be. Uh, there's a couple of tenants that a programmer should follow if they want to leverage the garbage collector um, most efficiently. And those tenants are um, create... When you create objects, try to make them so that they live for a very short period of time. Like, new up an object, use right. it, and then never use it ever again. And the garbage collector handles that very, very efficiently. I mean, it's counterintuitive because a lot of people think it's much better to create an object and let it stay around forever rather than up newing up pieces of garbage. But actually, the garbage collector okay. is fine-tuned to handle that very efficiently. Um, another thing that you can do to make the garbage collector run efficient is not have deep stacks. Well, that's really nice about ASP.NET is that most of the threads are, um, well, threads are usually sitting in a thread pool, idle with nothing to do. And when a client request comes in, the thread wakes up, handles a client request, and then returns back up to the top of the stack and goes to sleep in the thread pool. Um, having very short stacks is also very efficient for the garbage collector. That's a great thing. Um, Windows hmm. forms, that's a little bit harder to do. Usually your threads aren't completely at the top. But if your threads are generally sitting in a get message loop, that's as close to the top as you can get, and that's really pretty good. So that's very similar in that regard. Um, those those okay. are a couple of guidelines. So in, in general, um, there isn't really any difference. You're still you're still using using in C sharp and and uh uh, you know, dispose in VBNet and uh, dispose anything before it goes out of scope that you're creating in a scoped environment. But I was just thinking in terms of the fact that, you know, um, the, the ASP.NET application sort of comes and goes, whereas uh, the Windows application sticks around longer and has a chance for more things to pile up. So uh, are you a big fan of obfuscation in general? And I know that's an open-ended question and a loaded one, but uh, but uh, I I before I talked to Brent Rector actually, mm-hmm. I was sort of skeptical about obfuscation because I always had this idea in my mind that obfuscating will make your code slower for some reason, or or make it uh, you know bloated or uh, just less efficient. I suppose not necessarily bloated because it actually does make things smaller. But um, and and Brent actually turned me around on that and said, you know, with his product anyway, Demeanor, the uh, applications that are obfuscated are typically running faster. Not only are they faster, but they're smaller, and uh, they're not susceptible to prying eyes. Yeah, that's all true. I, I think. Uh, I mean, I'm. I prefer to see more things not obfuscated because I like to look at the IL and decompile it to see what it's doing. And I certainly right. hope that Microsoft does not obfuscate a lot of the stuff that they ship, especially since Microsoft documentation is not always awesome. Let's put it. Let's leave it right. at that. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> but uh, for stuff where you don't want people to have the prying eyes and take a look at what you're doing, yeah, I think obfuscation is a great thing. It does make the files smaller, and it does make them run faster too. And it makes very good sense if you're writing applications for the compact framework because you're really limited on memory space there. And just obfuscating them could just give you more memory available to your application and make it run faster. 
can you use a tool like Demeter on uh, assemblies for the compact framework? Yeah. Yes, you can. Oh, cool. Didn't know that. Yeah. I guess, why and not? In fact, I mean, you build the assemblies for the compact framework on your desktop using Visual Studio. It's the same C-sharp sure. compiler. It's the same class library, although certain functions don't exist on the compact framework version. So you have to avoid making yeah. calls to those. But then you can run and test the program on the desktop, and then you just copy the files the same exact XE or DLL files to the compact right. framework, and they can just run there. Apparently, uh, reflection doesn't work with an obfuscated program, obviously. Well, it will if you know what it was obfuscated to, which most people don't, so you're right. <laughs> yeah. Um, that was a question that came up in the RD alias lately, was, um, you know, how do I... How do I prevent somebody from looking at my code with a reflector, with you know, with a reflector or reflection API? Sure. And that was the answer. Yeah. So, uh, so what else can you tell us about the future, the future CLR, the the next generation after this next one? That's very cool. Well, one thing that's a little controversial, um, and you know, of course, anything I say about the future is subject to change. So that's my <laughs> dis- disclaimer. Now, especially since I'm, I'm going to talk about something that's probably about two years out from now uh, that we know right now. That's assuming it doesn't slip anymore. Um, but the one thing that's a little controversial, although I'm very happy to see it, is we think today, today, the, you can install multiple versions of the runtime on your machine. So you can have version right. 1.0, 1.1, and 2.0 installed side by side, we say. Um, in the future, in the Longhorn time frame, we have this feature that we call single CLR internally. And what that means is that we will install version 3 of the runtime on a Longhorn box, and all applications will now just run on version 3 of the runtime. And we won't let you install version 1.0, and 2.0 on that box. And whenever oh, we have wow. a new version of the runtime, it will just overwrite the previous version of the runtime, just like a new version of kernel 32 overwrote previous versions of kernel 32. And everybody's always going to be running on the latest version of the runtime. That's, of course, and, controversial because, you know, we might break something with backward compatibility, um, but we think we gain a lot of features and benefit from it and solve some other problems. When you weigh the pros and cons again, it's, you know, it's a, it's a compatibility versus innovation thing. That's what all yeah. versioning problems boil down to. And when you weigh right. those two things, we think that the single, single, single CLR gives us more pros than cons. I guess, you know, you have a lot more tools and a lot more stability in Longhorn, you know, like click once and things like that and the bit in bits and the ability to deliver updates, you know, behind the scenes that we didn't have, uh, that we we haven't had for a long time, that we're just getting used to now, that sort of make those issues a lot easier. I, I mean, I remember in the earliest days of DLL Hell, I guess, you know, 94, 95, I guess Windows 95 and 1996, 1997 was sort of like the worst of it. Um, you know, you had to go to wise install master school of installation voodoo in order to figure out how to make a setup script that, uh, that, you know, had the right DLLs and installed things in the right order and you wave the right magic bits and things like that. But after a while, it seemed, especially with service packs, with the advent of service packs, it seemed like machines got much more stable in general. And it was really only the errant 
uh, out of control uh, shareware program that you installed that seemed to screw things up. Yeah, I think that's generally true. Things did seem to get better. Yeah, so I guess I guess maybe I'm agreeing with you. I'm thinking that that might be a good thing. Well, today, for example, um, each version of the runtime has its own set of code access security policy settings. So if I right. down uh, download an application off the web, by default, it runs in the internet zone, and therefore it's heavily restricted. With the runtime, really prevents it from doing a lot of stuff like disk access. Um, but yet, if you want that program to access the disk, then you need to go and change the security policy settings. But you do that on a per-runtime version basis. So now the administrator or end user has to know which version of the runtime was that program built for so I can write the right, the, run the correct version of the CAS policy utility to modify the settings for that version of the runtime. And yeah. that's just an, a nightmare. End users, and, administrators you know, yeah. can't figure it out. In fact, once it took me three hours before I realized what was going on to do it. I kept running it and allowing it um, access to stuff, but then when I ran the application, it wasn't. Then I realized later that it was running with a different version of the runtime. But this single CLR thing fixes all of that because there will only be one set of security policies, and everything just uses that version of the runtime and that version of the policies. Uh, Wade from uh, Shelbyville, Kentucky, again asks, what will there be in the ways of profiling and performance testing in future versions? Uh, the Visual Studio team with Whitby is adding a bunch of tools to help with profiling. Uh, and they've really enhanced the debugger a lot in the Whitby Visual Studio. Um, there's new attributes that you can put on a class to to get visualizers up. So if you're looking at, let's say, an array list or a hash table, it can draw it for you graphically now in the debugger so you can see the connection of all the items that are inside the collection. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that is very cool. And you can write these things yourself, too, for your own data types that you create. So it's a completely extensible system. Uh, the profiler stuff, I know they have it. I haven't seen it yet, but I actually have a meeting with some people in the Visual Studio team on Monday to go and take a look at it. Um, so that'll be my first introduction into the new profiling tools that they're adding. That that looks very cool. The Visual Studio team is doing a lot of cool stuff for Whitby. I think it's going to be a really great product when they ship it. Here's a good question. Somebody in my class was wondering why we didn't have sort of basic uh, data structures in the .NET framework, like a linked list. You know, there's a few. There's like a queue and a stack, but you know, like the the classic list of data structures isn't there. Yeah. Well, there's an easy answer for that question, and the answer is resources. Microsoft just doesn't have the resources. Microsoft doesn't have the resources to build those? Yeah, to build them and to test them and to document them uh, and do the other stuff that they need to do. There's only so many developers there and documentation writers and testers there, and they get requests from people, and they prioritize all those requests. And while a bunch of people would like to have a linked list collection class, there's um, other stuff that a wider number of people really want to have. I got it. Yeah. So it's a matter of priority. Yeah, it's a matter of priority. Um, but you're giving me the opportunity to uh, plug something. On the okay. Wintelect website, we have a... I'm trying to find the exact URL now. Uh, if you go to wintelect.com 
slash power collections. We have worked out a deal with Microsoft where we are producing a bunch of new collection classes to kind of mimic the C uh, standard template library plus a bunch of other stuff. And linked list is included in the list and binary trees and things like that are included. And you can sign up for the blog. Uh, and the person who's actually building these is Peter Goldie. He was the dev lead on the C-sharp compiler. And then he retired from Microsoft um, about a year or two years ago. And he's building wow. these things. And Wintelect is going to be the place where people can join in on this community of all these new collection classes and see the blog and download it and, and make suggestions for how to improve these collections. Wow, that's excellent. Yeah. And if... Yeah, that's great. And we um, worked that out with Microsoft. Back, we're working on it together. Excellent. Well, uh, Mitch Rubush from Delaware um, has a uh, rebuttal to the the whole single CLR thing. And he says, what do you gain? I don't see this. I would like my application to work rather than have features that I'm not architected for or use in a non-working application. Won't this lead to the same DLL hell we had before? This app works, uh, requires CLR 2.0, but doesn't work on CLR 3.0. No upgrade yet, but this app is part of my line of business, and finance is now screaming for the new application and, and the old application. Now I can't upgrade to Longhorns somewhere, and it is all crazy. Yeah, so <laughs> he makes a very good point, um, and believe me, we've thought that through a lot. Um, but here is the biggest problem that we have today that the single CLR fixes. The biggest problem we have today is an application is made up of a bunch of DLLs made by different companies. And some of those DLLs may have been written for version 2 of the runtime, and some may be written for version 1 of the runtime, and some may be written for version 3 of the runtime. So in the Longhorn time frame, where, let's say, the new file open dialog box is written for version 3. Now you're yeah. running a Windows form app written for version 1 of the runtime on top of Longhorn. So we would load um, version 1 of the CLR, but then when the Windows form app tries to bring open the file open dialog, that is now the Longhorn version, and that code requires the CLR version 3. And we can't load two CLRs simultaneously into the same process. And even if we could, the communication between the code of the two would be, well, very slow and bogged down, and we don't even know if we could do it right. So we end up with these loader order dependency problems where the program doesn't work right that way. But if the program with the XE was written for 3.0, and then it gets version 3 of the runtime, but then it loads a component written for version 2.0, then we can't load version 2. It has to run with 3.0. So... The single CLR solves those problems, which today we have in real life because we do run runtime side by side with each other. Yeah, Richard Campbell is Richard Campbell is here um, in the same studio. I'm in his house, waiting patiently for the Toy Boy segment, but he feels he has to chime in here. So, uh... well, you know. You, you see the difference in different kinds of DLL hells. The real DLL hell is where, depending on what loads first, the app behaves differently. That's the real nasty DLL hell. And the one you're trying to get rid of is that one, where depending on which component loads, depend identifies which version of the framework loads first. 
if you go down to one framework, yes, apps are going to break, but they're going to break consistently. It'll always be broken. You'll know what's broken. Well, let me be clear about something. We are saying that uh, there will be only one version of the runtime installed on the machine, but we will install multiple versions of the framework libraries. Okay. So we will have one o. The base class library is going to be different. Yeah, the base class libraries, they will be able to load side by side. Now, MS, the stuff that's in MS CoreLib DLL, we have to treat that special. That's going to be, you're always going to get the latest version of that. But for Windows Forms DLL or Web Forms DLL, you're going to get the version that you were built and tested against. It'll just be running well, on top of the 3.0 runtime. I get it. So, so what would you include in the, in the 3.0 runtime? Just the, the data types and the, and the low level stuff? Well, the runtime is the, the loader where it goes out to the disk and finds DLLs to load them in. It includes right. the garbage collector. It includes the JIT compiler. It includes the code access security system. Um, that's what I is all, what I think of as all parts of the runtime. That makes much more sense now. Then there's the stuff in MS CoreLib, which is object and integer and date time and time span and array list and file stream. Those right. are also tied to the runtime. So if you get version 3 of the runtime, you're getting version 3 of those files. There's nothing we can do about that. Those are special. But all the other DLLs, except for MS CoreLib, all the other ones, those we're going to have version 1, 1, 1, 2, 0, and 3, 0 all installed on the Longhorn machine. Now, in reality, how much has the core framework changed from 1, 0 to 3, 0? You really mean the framework and not the runtime? I, I really mean the... No, no, I mean the run. I mean the runtime. I mean the the core stuff, not the not yeah. Right. So the core runtime. Um, well, I I don't know exactly how to answer that. I mean, we we do change the JIT compiler, so it produces different x86 code. Hopefully, we make it run right. But it's not going to be. You're not changing interfaces in the way things are called, though, right? No, right, right. We don't change Breaking any of that. compatibility. Well, we do have this new feature in Widby for how methods are called. We have this new thing called virtual stub dispatch um, instead of virtual table lookup whenever you call an interface method. So when, you're, when you write code to call an interface method, the way the runtime actually mm -hmm. transfers control to the method today and the way it does it in Whitby is radically different. Massively different. But that should be, you know, it's under the covers. Nobody should really see that. Although it might change performance characteristics of your application because of that difference. And we hope that it'll perform better, not worse. Um, that's why we did it, in fact, to try to get better perf there. But hopefully you just never see that. And we always, we tweak the garbage collector, we tweak the JIT compiler, we tweak the security system, and we fix bugs in it, and then we, hopefully we add features and make it go faster. Um, right. With every version of the and, runtime. And, yeah, and history has shown that the, the interfaces really do change very little from framework to framework, even in the, geez, even in the base class library. Yeah, so we're, and we're dedicated to not breaking anything there. We have an internal document called the breaking change document that's, that any team that wants to make any kind of change has to look at this, and if it hits one of the items that's on the breaking change document, um, the default is they're not allowed to do it. But if they really want to, they can go to set up a meeting and make their case for why they want to make this particular change. And it probably includes requiring customer feedback. Yeah. We also have another thing that we do in the runtime that we never did in Windows, which is obsoleting. 
there's this obsolete custom attribute that's in the system namespace. Right. It's been in there since version one. And we're starting to use that very heavily now. We look at this class library now a couple years later after when we first created it, and some of the things we look at it and we cringe going, what the hell were we thinking? This is incredibly stupid. Or we could do it better today. And we will go and place the obsolete attribute on certain methods. Um, like there's a method on assembly called load with partial name. That was a horrible, horrible method. We should have never added it to the system. And in Whitby, we've ops put the obsolete attribute on it. Your code will still compile against it, and it'll still run correctly today. But whenever you compile your code, you get a um, warning message that says, please stop calling this function. And in Orcus, we're probably going to take that function out, and your program won't run. All right, so today, so today in 2004, to GAC or not to GAC? What's your answer? Avoid the GAC if you can, but if you really want the component to be shared, it's okay to put it in the GAC. What's a good example of something that's appropriate to put in the GAC? Well, all the libraries that ship with the .NET framework. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, they're all put in the GAC. All the Windows Form stuff, all the ASP stuff. I mean, every, you know, every Windows application, Windows Form application running on the machine needs the system.windows.forms.dll. So it makes perfect sense for that to go in the GAC and be shared by all those Windows Forms apps that are running. So if you're making an application framework that isn't going to change much, that'd be good. And and just cl clarify that why it is that it's that it shouldn't go in the GAC. Um, we want things not to go in the GAC because we one of the nice features of the .NET framework was this xcopy deployment, we call it, where you can just copy the XE and DLL off of a floppy or a CD-ROM drive and just put it in a directory on your machine, and it just works. And then the uninstall, if you want to get rid of that program, is you just remove the directory and its subdirectories, and the program is completely gone, because in the .NET world, we don't use registry settings anymore. And yeah. the moment you put something in the GAC, you now have part of the application here and part of the application there in two different places, and then it becomes much harder to know that this component was used by this application, and when I delete this application, do I need to also delete this thing in the GAC? I mean, you can't you re remove directory doesn't do the complete uninstall anymore. Now you need to have an MSI package and you have, the user has to go to add remove programs, and, and hopefully that's right. all done correctly. And so, and to move things in and out, you have to be an administrator, too. We're back to that. Yes, that's true, too. Yeah. So the official story um, is avoid yeah. it if you can, but you know, don't put yourself in the hospital trying to avoid it. Right. Um, getting back to this idea of uh, um, the, the one single CLR... Wade uh, Beasley asks again, so is Microsoft creating n-unit test jigs just to do all the regression testing between versions? So that's a good question. Do you guys use a, are you test-driven, the development? Uh, we have BBTs, we call them, which are build verification tests. And mm -hmm. after we do a build of the system, we run these BBTs to test each of the APIs. So it was not as formal or as clean as something like NUnit was. But certainly we do have test suites um, for for all of our APIs to do regression okay. testing. Cool. Well, it sounds like some great things are coming down the pike. 
Um, any other uh, innovations that uh, are going to rock our world in the Orcus time frame? Um, well, Orcus is tied to Longhorn. And Longhorn, right. well, the term .NET framework, I think, will ultimately cease to exist. So that, that phrase will just go away. When Longhorn yeah. ships, the common language runtime, the CLR, is an operating system component at that point. And then all of the class libraries that give you functionality is now called WinFX for Windows frameworks. And it's amazing to me, but I'm on some email aliases, and Microsoft has many developers that are building managed wrappers on top of everything. Printing, Active Directory, um, the sound system, speech APIs. Uh, well, the handwriting stuff, as we just saw at the Tablet PC Dev Lab this week, has managed um, wrappers for all that stuff. Um, new collaboration APIs, real-time communication APIs, all of this stuff is going to be in managed classes. So I, I think the class library is going to get phenomenally huge, um, probably bigger than the Win32 API as it stands today. I sort of see... No, go ahead. Now you. The good thing is, is that it's a, once you learn the programming paradigm and object-oriented programming, these things all fit together, and programmers will be able to use them, to, to learn them much more quickly than they could with Win32. And they'll be able to put them together in ways that was very difficult to do with Win32. It should be much easier to build applications and give them features in a much simpler way than ever before. Hmm. The... Um one of my pet peeves is that I always hear people saying, you know, the dot the word .NET is going away and .NET framework is going away and stuff, because Microsoft is really driven by the fact that they their their goal, you know, their their jihad is to move everybody over to Longhorn, and but you know, in reality, that never happens with any version of Windows. That it's a slow migration, and you said it yourself. There are a lot of people still out there using dial-up and we can't put the .NET framework out there for people to download. So I think that your your developer profile is going to look like somebody doing development with .NET for XP and Windows 2000 and possibly even NT for quite a long time to come. And, and in addition to that, doing WinFX development, you know, the managed code, the CLR 3.0, the Orcus uh, platform, but these developers aren't just going to just chuck all of their code and chuck all of their applications and their customers that that aren't running Longhorn. So you know, I, I you know, it's just a, a peeve of mine that uh, whenever you talk to anyone at Microsoft, it's like it's like the word .NET isn't going to exist in two years, and it's just uh, not true. I agree. It'll stay around for a long time, but at some point, it will cease to exist. And it may be 20 years yeah. from now. True. Well, uh, do you have any uh, last-minute topics that you want to, uh, or last-minute words of wisdom or advice that you want to, to, to grant to our listeners out there before we move on to uh, Richard Campbell, the Toy Boy segment of the show? Um, I just, uh, I had been doing Win32 programming for maybe 10 years, and I thought that things were really getting stale for me, um, I, know, I had done four editions of my advanced Windows book, and I really wasn't relishing working on a fifth edition of it. And when the .NET framework came around and the CLR, I just got very excited. And I think it's 
kind of a cool time now where we can be really productive very quickly and machines have gotten to the power where we can run things like garbage collected systems and things like that. And it's kind of a cool time to be in the programmer space. We can make stuff happen with minimal code. And uh, we should all enjoy yeah. that. And then probably in a couple of years, there'll be a paradigm shift and it'll get even better. So, long live managed code. Long live managed <laughs> code. That's it exactly. All right. Well, stick around, Jeff, while we, uh, while we talk to Richard Campbell here. Richard the Toy Boy, you might uh, be interested in some of the things that he uncovers. And so uh, so without any further ado, let me introduce Richard the Toy Boy, ladies and gentlemen. I love that part of that song. <laughs> NASA complains about the sonic boom. And that's very relevant to one of today's toys, isn't it, Richard? Well, yeah, it is. But uh, let's get to that toy later. Let's start with uh, <laughs> a more serious toy, as we uh, usually do. Uh, as you know, I've been uh, looking heavily into uh, laptop bags. Uh, for all of us road warriors, laptop bags are serious business. Yes. And, uh, uh, I've been a big Toomey fan for years. I've had a number of different Toomey laptop bags. They're uh, very pricey and worth every penny. They work like a charm, but they can't handle the latest generation of laptops. I really think uh, Toomey sort of missed the boat here. Our new laptops are big and they're heavy and they need better support and better protection. So I've had to look elsewhere. And uh, the bag that's really set me back and stared hard is the guys at Tom Bin, www.tombihn.com, tombin.com. They make a beautiful, beautiful bag. These guys have been building bags for a long, long time. Wow, I'm looking at it now. It's, it's really a, nice. It's a sweetie. Uh, their brain bag is their big bag, and it's actually big enough to put two laptops into. And their particular technique is to build a really good bag that then has different inserts that go into it for your laptop. So they have a little laptop sizer, which has pretty well every laptop ever heard of listed in it. You pick it, and it'll tell you what particular insert will support your bag. And they have several different styles of inserts, and then it'll tell you what bags those inserts will go into. And there are other features. There's a different inserts you can put into the bag. There's uh, carrying bags for your bits and pieces and so forth. So I picked up one of these brain bags for my great big Dell XPS, and uh, I've been traveling around with it lately. The bag itself is physically smaller than the bag that came from Dell, and it's a much higher quality. That stuff, that 1,000 denier Cordera, it's indestructible. You could use it as wow. sandpaper if you wanted to. And there still is room, even with my beast, that if I wanted to slip a little slate in there, I could. There's enough room for two machines in there. <laughs> the other thing is these guys are serious bag builders. They're laptop builders sort of second. First, they figure out how to make a great bag, and the materials reflect that and how everything is mounted. They've also put some extras on you don't usually find on a laptop bag. You know, you go buy yourself a little $50 laptop bag. You don't get the good quality buckles, and you don't get this additional strapping works. They've got a little strap that you clip on between the shoulder straps across your chest so your shoulder straps stay in place, which is a godsend when you're tearing across an airport trying to get make your flight. <laughs> they also have a hip belt. This is a lower part on the, on the bag. So this actually takes some of the weight off your shoulders and onto your hips. And not everybody likes this particular thing, and you could cut it off if you had to. But I found when I didn't want to put it on, I could just tighten it up, and it sort of sat in the small of my back and didn't bother me at all. So... You can't touch this bag. $250, totally loaded. Everything on it comes in lots of different colors, will fit virtually every laptop. Even 
My buddy Tom Howe's big Toshiba P25, which is a monster of a machine, will go into this bag with a particular insert. Now, which particular bag is it that you, uh, again, one more time, that you really like here? Now, the bag that I'm using, and actually you can see right over there, yep. <laughs> the bag that I'm using is the Brain Bag. The Brain Bag. And they call it the Ultimate Backpack Bag. And I like backpacks because you get it on your back, it gets out of your hands, you're maneuverable, and you can usually sneak it on in an airplane without getting into trouble with it. And uh, that brain bag, and I have to use a mammoth insert because I have the XPS machine. So that uh, insert's a bit bigger. Uh, one of the things I like is even though it has a removable insert, you can pull the laptop in and out of the bag without taking the insert out, which often is a problem with these separate insert style bags. You know what's cool about it in general is it looks like a backpack. So if you leave it in your car while you go in and get a coffee at Starbucks, nobody's going to say, ah, a laptop bag and steal it, you know? Yeah, you're, you're right. And it's not just black. Right. You know, at least, yeah. you know, I lost my laptop bag. What's it look like? It's a black it's bag. Black. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, oh, and I, I got to tell you this. My daughter, Alex, who's a, who's turning a bit of a computer geek herself. She loves this bag. She thinks it's the best bag going because it's blue instead of black. And by the way, Alex got into the chat room and she sent us a message that says, I hear you. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, we're indoctrinating new programmers every day. Right, right, right. So you think this is one that we should uh, give away today think, on the show? I think we should. I think we should put a, together a brain bag. We're going to have to find out what laptop you, our winner has to figure out what insert to put into it. But uh, okay. the guys at Tom Bin will help us out with that, and we'll uh, we'll get a bag to a lucky winner. Just wait till the end here, and we'll pop you a good question. Right. Before we do that, you you always, on the in this segment, Richard, you have an awesome must-have toy, and that's what this is. But then there's also the also-ran toy. Uh, of the week, which is something that, you know, not everybody's going to go out and buy, but uh, maybe, oh, I don't know, a little weird, a little strange, well, there's, a little downright sick. There's toys and then there's toys. These are really <laughs> falling into the category of, well, toys you just should not do. <laughs> and I think this one qualifies, but and it's a Kiwi toy. Right? It's from New Zealand. So, Kiwi? Yeah, you have the, 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 the New Zealand folks, they call, call themselves Kiwi, but oh, go okay. with me on this. Try All right, this. Okay www.trademe.co.nz and hit enter on that. And you're in a sort of an eBay thing from New Zealand. Hmm. And then in the search dialog, that little search window on the left-hand side there, leave it at all listings, but type in this number. This is for a particular listing. 135-60-112. And then hit Go. Uh, now, <laughs> jet-powered go kart. This is a trading cars, <laughs> right? This is a little car trade site, so they have stuff like the odometer and you know previous owner and so forth. Although in this particular case, this is basically a shopping cart with a pulse jet engine strapped onto the back, Jeez. and does about sixty miles an hour. You know, it's only stereo is the great big subwoofer strapped onto the back of it. Has good air conditioning because, let's face it, it doesn't have a windshield. Anyway, apparently, <laughs> oh this guy is quite famous. This Kiwi is quite famous for building these wacky machines, and he's decided to sell this particular go-kart. Runs on propane. Unfortunately, the sales now It's close. a jet-powered go-kart. It's a jet-powered go-kart. Uh, not big on the cornering part of the equation. <laughs> yeah. This is not the sort of thing you I really want to drive down the I love the comments that he wrote here on the... Uh, read some of these comments from the page. Ah, uh, yes. Great. Let's see. Um, 
My question is, does it have a normal speed or does it only work when everything is lit? <laughs> <laughs> it does have some degree of throttle control. So by use of this and the brake, which isn't too effective, you can travel as slow or as fast as you want to go. And it really, it, it doesn't have much of a brake at all. Right. Yeah. Hey, do you plan to sell any of your other stuff here? How much will there on the cruise missiles be? You know? I like that. Well, the story goes, this particular guy built himself a $5,000 Pulse Jet cruise missile, which the U.S. was not particularly happy about. This guy's nuts. Yeah, he's a, he's but he a says in his talent. He says in, in the description of the thing, he says, you know, I've had it for several years now, and it's it's becoming a novelty, and, a, you know, the thrill is gone kind of thing. So I'm just trying to get rid of it, and it's kind of falling apart, but I'll weld it up for you before <laughs> I ship it. Yeah, and I don't know if I really want a used pulse jet engine. Yeah, really. It's really insane. And and the final price that this was actually sold for was 700 bucks. And that's Australian or this uh, Kiwi dollars. So that's about 75 cents on the dollar for US. So, yeah, yeah no big deal. 4 or 500 dollars? You bet. That's pretty insane. Well, it sure beats the hell out of the smart clamp. Uh, <laughs> uh yeah, little hotter. <laughs> So Richard, what do people have to do to uh, get their get their take their chances with uh, with per- with getting a, a laptop bag here? Well, I always like people to go to the site of the product we're talking about. So somewhere on the site, there's a range of colors. That's one of the neat things about Tom Bim bags. You get them all kinds of different colors. And one of the colors of one of the components of the bags is actually a food. So find me the food that is a color in the Tom Bin bag. And you'll win yourself a Tom Bim brain bag. Excellent. And what you can do is just go to uh, uh, send email to .net rocks at franklins.net, and we'll play a little traveling music for you while you're doing that. So send your, send your answers to .net rocks at franklins.net, and we'll uh, wait until we get an answer. And one more time, Richard, what is it that they have to do? Find the color that's the you name of the food? you to find me the color that is a food for one of the components in the bag. The first one's a winner. Just to be clear, it seems like somebody is sending us the color of a bag, and that's not what you want, right? Yeah, no, I want a co- the color of one of the components in the bag. One of the options is a food. All right.
And we have a winner. And the winner is Brian. Brian at SherwinSolutions.com. Brian, don't know your last name, but congratulations. You are the winner of a brand new laptop bag. And uh, congratulations. Enjoy that. So what we'd like you to do, Brian, is uh, just go ahead and email us your your uh, contact information, and we'll get that to you right away. So what would you think of that segment, Jeff? Oh, that was awesome. I have a friend who has a Tom Isn't that pretty bag. cool? Yeah, and um, he showed yeah. me in the bag there's a label with care instructions, and they're in English and in French. And if you translate the French, it says, we are sorry that our president is an idiot. We didn't vote for him. <laughs> so uh, so there you go. And, and Jeff, I, I'd like to thank you for coming on the show and talking all things CLR with us. It was great. My pleasure. Thank you for having and, me. Uh, yeah, come back again. All right, Please. will do. And on behalf of uh, myself and Rory Blythe, Richard Campbell, Jeff Maciolik out there in the sound room uh, in New London, Connecticut, yeah, thanks for listening to another episode of .NET Rocks. We'll be back next week when our guests will be Kimberly Tripp. We'll be talking with Kim all about all things SQL Server and Yukon. So. And uh, everybody have a good night, and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.